You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. This is the teaching text for today. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by his strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. So Mike Donahue uh, is an author of a book called Grace in the Gray, and he shares a story that I heard a few months back that really got me. He talks about his abusive grandfather toward his dad. And as a teenager, his dad ran away from home to work at the World's Fair and would later join the Air Force, move across the country, and marry his mom. And one day, Mike asked his dad, how did you do it? How exactly did you break the cycle of abuse? And he said, oh, I can tell you when. I came to know Jesus at this church when the pastor read this particular verse. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And the pastor went on to say, I don't mean to offend anyone, but this call is for you. So Mike's dad goes home and writes his father a letter. And as I'm hearing this story, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know where this is going. He's going to forgive his dad for all the abuse and neglect that he experienced by him. But he says, I did the exact opposite. I wrote a letter asking my dad to forgive me for all the bitterness and resentment and rage I held against him. I have no idea if he read the letter but the second I put it in the mail, my weight got lifted. Sarah and I were watching a show the other day where one of the main characters named Natalie had an opportunity to save someone who fell into a frozen lake. And instead of saving him, she just watched him die. And much of the rest of the show is her dealing with this existential guilt, unable to really cope with what she did and did not do. And there's a friend of Nat's who takes her under her wing and attempts to do some deep inner work required when dealing with shame. And Natalie is getting more and more frustrated and she gets up to exit the room and she says, hey, thanks for trying to teach me about forgiveness. It's a really great idea. Forgiveness is a really great idea. We're journeying on in Peter's letter, and we get to some of the nuts and bolts, the practicalities of what life in exile looks like, specifically in the context of the local church. Next week, we'll discuss leadership within the church, and in the following week, we'll end Peter's letter with his final exhortation toward the church. But this week is about life inside the church. How do we live with one another? What does the family of God look like? What does it smell like? So I want to break this section down into four parts, the motivation for community, the method for community, the gifts of community, and the Lord of community. So we will start with motivation. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love 
covers a multitude of sins. Nothing else I'm going to say here is going to matter if this is not the ground to start on. We speak so much about love, both inside and outside the church, but what is love if not forgiveness? The cross is love because at the cross there is precisely that, forgiveness. The vision of marriage we read in Ephesians 5 is lofty and it's wonderful, but the bedrock and the foundation of that marriage is actually found in the gritty words of Ephesians 4. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Anyone who is married can tell you saying I love you while never saying I forgive you or saying I love you but never asking for forgiveness rings fairly hollow. And anyone who has a parent can tell you that the words I love you don't have much meaning if they have never been backed up by the words do you forgive me. And anyone and everyone in this room who has been wronged, which by the way is everyone at this point in their life, can tell you that community, apart from apology, is either an echo chamber or it's non-existent. And this, of course, by no means is easy. Arguably, arguably, this is the apex of Christian discipleship. It is the highest calling, and unfortunately, it incurs the largest cost. Tim Keller's book on forgiveness was the last book he wrote before he died, and it honestly might be his best yet. And he has this line. Forgiveness is a voluntary form of suffering. In forgiving, rather than retaliating, you make a choice to bear the cost. Offering forgiveness is much less about the person that committed the wrong and much more about the one who was wronged. The language of love is forgiveness. And most of us know the Lord's Prayer by heart, but we tend to stop reading in Matthew after the line, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But it's actually the exhortation to forgive that closes the section out. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What do you believe your ministry is? If you were to consider your life and your giftings and you were to take a gander, it might be I have a ministry at my job or I have a ministry to my spouse, to my kids, to my neighbors, or to my business. That would not be completely inaccurate. But what does Paul say that our ministry is? What are we ministers of exactly? Reconciliation. Do you think of your life as an outworking of reconciliation? At the bottom of your life is the question, have I been reconciled to God? Has the chasm between God and I been eliminated? And have I received the invitation from God to trust that it's been abolished. That is the primary question. But the second question reveals how much we believe the first question. Is there anyone I am refusing to forgive? Because if that is the case, we are fundamentally missing what it means to be reconciled, and we're probably fundamentally missing God. Jesus calls each of us to different things, and he calls each of us to the same thing, the same ministry. It is inherent to his followers. He spends a whole night 
on top of a mountain, praying to the Father, asking for wisdom, insight, and discernment, because the very next day, he's going to call his 12 disciples. And those 12 are not from the same tribe. Someone working for the state and someone working to murder people who work for the state aren't exactly Thursday night trivia buddies. And Jesus calls them to lay down their arms and their power, and he calls them to walk alongside one another into his kingdom. And by calling them to himself, calls them to reconcile. And who knows, honestly, they probably still disagreed on a host of things. It would be shocking, honestly, if they didn't. But I have good news for you. Disagreement is a sign that you are in relationship. If everyone you hang around agrees with everything you say and everything you do, you are not in relationship with anyone but yourself. And if everything you say and everything you feel and everything you do is validated and approved and affirmed by God, you are not in relationship with God, you are in relationship with a mirror. Disagreement is not a sign of unhealth, it is actually a sign of relationship. Here's the deal, we love being right. I am not a one or an eight on the Enneagram, and I love being right. <laughs> and if you hear nothing else from me, hear this, and I say this as someone who has made this trade more times than I can count. I made it on Tuesday morning with Sarah, so I am as guilty as they come. Feeling right is an easy and cheap substitute for feeling love. What is my motivation? See, if my motivation is rightness, then I will either be constantly disappointed or incessantly arrogant. I am never right, or they are always wrong. This is why, by the way, we surround ourselves with people who think, act, and talk like us, because they validate us. Because it feels good to feel right. But feeling right is a cheap and easy substitute for feeling loved. And the sad reality is we have equated the two. In the conflict with Sarah, my deepest desire was still to be loved, but my strongest desire was definitely to be right. The foundation of everything we do, above all, love one another earnestly. The word earnestly is better translated constantly. Keep love constant. It describes something that is stretched and extended. Because if love collapses at the first sign of disaster, it is not worthy of the name. A parent's love for a child grows as it is tested. A spouse's love for her husband grows as it is tested. A dear friend's love expands as it is tested. And Peter approaches Jesus during his ministry and says, Look, Jesus, how often does my brother have to sin against me and I must forgive him? Like seven times? Times 70. And that is nearly impossible for us to comprehend because for the majority of us, our max is like twice. Wrong me once, shame on you. Wrong me twice, I am out. And then Jesus launches right into a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. The parable is a really nice story, but the last line is somewhat of a devastating blow. If you do not forgive your brother from the heart, or in Jewish language, from the depths of your being, from your gut. Do you notice that he does not compare the same amount of finances the servant owes the king and the servant owes the earthly master? 10,000 talents is our equivalency to $6 billion. And 100 denarii is our equivalency to $1,200. The only way you actually can do the work of sincere forgiveness is once you come to grips with your own offense toward the Father. This does not negate the wrongs done against you, but it actually empowers you to do the harder work of constant love, which is what we call forgiveness. This, by the way, is the Dylan Roof moment, right? Where even after committing the heinous hate crime of stepping into EAME Church in South Carolina and killing nine people, he writes this from his prison cell. I would like to make it crystal clear that I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I had to do what I did in the first place. That is what hate sounds like. And in court... Nadine Collier steps to the mic, the daughter of Ethel Lance, who was killed in the shooting, and she says with tears in her eyes, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. That is what love sounds like. Voluntary suffering. It would have been easy, natural, and valid to put Dylan Root on absolute blast. It was otherworldly to offer mercy. Humanly speaking, it is nearly impossible to imagine that she felt forgiveness for him. But again, Tim Keller says, forgiveness is granted often a good while before It is felt, not felt, before it is granted. It is a promise not to exact the price of sin from the person who hurts you. It is exact, it is likely you have always thought, well, I have to feel it before I grant it. I have to start feeling less angry before I start to not hold them liable. And if you wait to feel it 
before you grant it, you will never grant it. How could someone step to a mic and offer forgiveness after a racial hate crime that took a mother's life? Only someone who has been wrecked by the mercy of God. For love covers a multitude of sins. It does not excuse sin. It actually confronts sin. Forgiveness says there has been an offense made. And I will not hold it over your head. The ground of our relationship, specifically if we are in any meaningful ones, has to be rooted in the love of God that has covered us so that our love might be stretched to cover one another. Forgiveness. It's a really great idea. The path from idea to implementation, from theory to practice, is, by the way, a very long path. And we see Jesus walk that path from Gethsemane to Golgotha, from frustration and lament, that this is the way the Father will accomplish his work, to making a choice, an unbelievable choice, to surrender and to be the one to bear the cost. The driving motivation is love acted out in forgiveness. And if you want to know the heart of God, start with forgiveness. It is the crux of our entire faith. Then there is the method of community. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So with the foundation set, we lean into the how. And the through line from Genesis to Revelation is the through line of the home. God always intends to dwell with his people. He did it in Genesis 1. It was called home defined. Perfect communion in a perfect world. Then Genesis 3 happens and we rebel and we call that home defiled. And the rest of the Old Testament is God making a way through spotless sacrifices to live and be with his people. To be a home for his people. A resting place. A place of belonging and purity. And the stated promise throughout the law and the prophets is that home will in fact come down. And then in John, we hear that the home did come down and it moved into our neighborhood and onto our streets. If our ministry is reconciliation to one another, our method must be proximity to one another because that is the way of Jesus. Some of you are unreal hosts. You make great food. Your house is odorless. The table is set. You offer us such a gift. Thank you. We honor you for that. But because we breathe the air of competition, when we see people who embody the art of hosting, we automatically reserve their spot as the ones who are hospitable. But elegance and class is not the definition of biblical hospitality. The definition of biblical hospitality is an offer of oneself in service to others. This uh, picture might not be the most immediate picture that comes to your mind right now, but over the last 50 years, this is one of the lasting images of cultural hospitality. Beautiful table, great host, comfort food. And recently, I would argue this image captures our imagination as current hospitality. And I'm not inferring that either of these are morally wrong. If you want Martha Stewart to cook you for you, have at it. Uh, or if you want a sweet dinner outside with mood lighting and candles and a four-course meal, be my guest. But let's be careful not to confuse entertainment with hospitality. 
because there are some distinctions between the two. Here is a short list. Entertainment is about exclusion. Who can I invite that I am comfortable with? Hospitality is about inclusion. It is an open table to everyone. Entertainment is about performance. I intend to do something so that I find you find me impressive. Hospitality is about service. I don't care if you notice. Entertainment is about host and guest. There is a very definite line on who is the host and who is the guest. And the beauty of Jesus is that we read in the Gospels that he really didn't have a place to lay his head. So every place he entered into, he was both host and guest. He easily blurred the lines. And I feel like this particular distinction is the epitome of what we're trying to embody in missional communities. If you come into a missional community, you are both host and guest. You are both contributor and receiver. You are a participant because Christianity is a participation sport. It is not a trophy sport. There are no awards given. There is only the invitation to participate. So when we come, whether you are a host or whether you are someone who doesn't live anywhere near this neighborhood, the idea is you come to give and you come to receive. If entertainment is sporadic, meaning it's typically a planned event three or four weeks out. You gather all your friends. Uh, hospitality is typically a lifestyle. It is rhythmic. It is just part of your DNA. Entertainment is about reciprocity. You come to my house. I come to your house. We have this thing where I do something for you. Now you do something for me. And hospitality doesn't expect anything in return. And entertainment is about stratification. The farther you go up the chain, the more able you are to distinguish yourselves from those who you don't want to be. Hospitality is about justice, which is the great banquet table of the kingdom, which means that kings and the poor are going to literally dine together in the new heavens. Game nights might be your biggest inroad to trusted relationships. A lot of stuff happens around the table which is why we've made it one of the centerpieces of our church. But the table does not merely mean an actual dinner table, though it must include that. But the table is your personal space that is not necessarily always your private space. You have made it your own, right? You have respites in your house that you retreat to. You have places where you get alone with God, where you laugh with your kids, where you have intimate conversations with your spouse. All those are absolutely a part of your home. But our homes are meant to be leveraged for an attack on the kingdom of darkness. God sets the lonely in families, says the psalmist. Is your home an actual apologetic to another kingdom or is it your castle to escape from? Is it sending a message to our community? Is it sending a message to this community that sacrificial and yes, sometimes inconvenient love is the way of Jesus? Francis Schaeffer says there is no place in God's world, where there are no people who will come share a home as long as it is a real home. If your home is a real home, people will come. Let's continue to create spaces within our homes and within ourselves that are both outposts of the kingdom in our city and inroads to real relationships within this body. I have grown the last couple of years to love the story of Mary and Martha the more I read it. It says, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. 
And she had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This image is of both home redeemed and a foreshadowing of home renewed. Yes, Martha is hosting, but she's not paying attention to the Lord, who she's, by the way, hosting. She's much more concerned with so many other things. It is easy, so easy to be overwhelmed by the anxiety of doing a lot for Jesus in whatever situation you're in. But this is the core of our discipleship. Jesus is pursuing people. He is pursuing you. We just have to turn our senses to it. And when we do, the general restlessness that we feel gets overshadowed by the restful presence of the Spirit of God. Jesus' gentle rebuke to Martha rang so loud to me this week. It was just, Wesley, Wesley, you are anxious about so many. Here's how I read it. Wesley, in the story, you are Martha. The thing has to be right. The conversation has to go this way. The insight has to be revealed. The light bulb has to come on. The timing has to be perfect. And the food has to be good. Those things may not be wrong, but they are not the good portion. The pursuing presence of God is what you are after because it will never be taken from you. So we are part of a story where home gets renewed. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God's intention is always to dwell with us. So each game night that builds trust and laughter, each child that gets welcomed in with hope and encouragement, each neighbor that gets walked with on a consistent basis is an opportunity to embody radical hospitality an offer of yourself to service to another. We are not looking to be impressive. We are looking to be present. Which leads me to the third motivation or the third uh, point, which is gifts. And I want to just camp here for a moment. Um, it says that each has received a gift. And it was funny because Zeru and I were discussing something the last week before he left, and I had given him a book by Henry Nowen, uh, who is this Catholic priest, and he said, Wes, why are you not Catholic? Which was a very Zeru-like question, <laughs> just right on the nose. Uh, so I gave him a couple different reasons, uh, but I ended up saying, ultimately, I believe in the priesthood of all believers. Pentecost was not for the 12 disciples alone. That was the beauty of it. It was ordinary people showing up on an ordinary day, and God poured out his spirit so that ordinary people could become extraordinary vessels that God would do something for. And most of the people of the early church are no names to us. But without God using no names to us, there wouldn't be an us. Raise your hand if you came to faith because of the primary influence of your parents. Three quarters of the room. 
Tell me there is not divine gifting given to ordinary people working ordinary jobs that have experienced supernatural love and as messy and as challenging and as bizarre as it might be, God gave them gifts. You are the result. God has not given some gifts. He's not given a few gifts. Open your hands to Jesus and he will pour out his spirit on you and out of his spirit comes gifting through you. There is no hierarchy of skill, of personhood, of dignity, or of gifting. There is merely each of you. And I think too often in the church, we focus on this thing that we've somehow coined called the inventory of spiritual gifts. And trying to figure out what our spiritual gifts are. I personally think Peter would be somewhat distressed and potentially even appalled at how we treat gifts as if it's some sort of clothing rack where we try things on for size and then we put it back if it doesn't work. In a world that is increasingly introspective, maybe one of the worst things you can do is get really introspective about what your gifting is, which I think is a lot of times what spiritual gifts inventories do. We can rightly ask what gifts we have received, but we are not going to gain any more insight by just overt introspection. Because what happens most of the time is that hyper-introspection leads us to a place of focus on me. It is the idea of self-fulfillment. I don't feel fulfilled doing this. As if practicing hospitality or showcasing generosity or encouraging the saints or befriending the lonely or interceding on behalf of a friend who has betrayed you or giving insight to someone who refuses to listen or having faith on behalf of someone who can't believe for themselves is always fulfilling. That language is the language of the culture. It is not the language of Jesus. Do you want to know what gifts you have? Serve. Serve one another. God did not come to earth to be served. Jesus was intimately loved by the Father, which allowed him to pour himself out. But make no mistake, it's not as if dying a brutal death on the cross, he felt a sweet level of personal fulfillment and great satisfaction. Agony marked him. Pain marked him. Isaiah describes him as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He sweated blood out of stress. His friends fell asleep on him. And he was left alone. Most of his disciples abandoned him out of fear. I don't believe Jesus said, you know this thing? It's not really fulfilling me. Now, I am not suggesting that you go live in misery. Or there aren't times and seasons to evaluate what you're doing and to what end you are doing it. Those are appropriate. But the overall consensus of the Western church is laughable when you consider the churches to whom Peter was writing were living in complete opposition to powers and principalities in the world and complete dependence on one another. And here we are talking about what energizes me, what fills me up. And I have used that language a lot in the past, so I'm saying this as a recovering self-fulfiller. But that has such like a smell of pride to it. God's gifting through people was meant to serve the church, not yourself. You pour yourself out, and ideally you are getting filled back up by the Spirit through the church, who is also pouring himself out. It's just not always that clean. Then he says, as good stewards of varied grace. In 1954, Leland Sprinkle went down to tour the the Ray Caverns of Virginia. 
with his son and a guide. And at the time, the guides would, the guides would tap the various stalactites hanging from the ceiling to show the different tones and sounds that would come from them. And it was there that Mr. Sprinkle got inspired. And noticing all the various and unique and beautiful sounds that would emanate from the cavern, he thought, this place can actually sing. So he proceeded to combine rubber mallets and the concept of an organ and build what would become the largest instrument in the world called the Great Stalactite Organ. I thought I had a oh, oh, I thought I had a picture. Um, it's amazing. Just a word for it. Um, each rubber motorized mallet strikes a stalactite when the keys from the organ are punched. And the stalactites cover three and a half acres of the cavern. And if you happen to go down at just the right time, you will find an organist present playing something like Moonlight Sonata, Moonlight Sonata or one of Beethoven's classics. The cavern literally sings. And visitors who hear the music remember the deep, majestic echoes of classical pieces belted out by rocks. If such a medley, if such a beautiful piece of music can be made through such variety that is found in calcium deposits, how much more does the very tones of God's spirit echo out through his people? A single stalactite making a single sound does not do much, but the organist sitting down to compose a symphony through mallets and rocks that is glory. See, each person doing their own thing, each individual making single droplets onto an otherwise expansive cavern is an individual trying to say, look at me. Look at me. But the maestro behind the keys playing the notes that strike the stalactites that compose a ballad that sings, well, that is an apt description of the church. The church receiving the love of God, firm in their belovedness, figuring out their gifting and wiring through service to each other. Symphony. It is a symphony. We are stewards, which means we play a part, a significant one, but we play a part in a larger orchestra, sounding a larger piece. The beauty of the church is that you are involved. And the beauty of the church is that it's not only about you getting involved. Which leads me to the last shift, which is the Lord. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong dominion forever. The glory of God through Jesus is that he is both personal and he's majestic. He is in all and he is above all. He is ruler of the world and friend to sinners. Why does glory and dominion belong to him forever? Well, he's majestic. Just look at the first book of the scriptures. He is creator, bringing order from chaos. He is life giver, making Adam from dust and Eve from his rib. He floods the earth in judgment. He confounds human language at Babel. He overthrows Sodom and Gomorrah by a volcano. He was present at Cain's murder, mankind's corruption, and Hagar's destitution. He promises Sarah a child in her 90s, and his own name for himself is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And that is just the first book. But then look at your own life. Hey, look at your own body. Your brain weighs a whopping three pounds. 
Theoretical physicist Michio Kaku says the human brain has 100 billion neurons, and each neuron connects to 10,000 other neurons. Sitting on your shoulders is the most complicated object in the known universe. Your eyes. There are more than two million working parts of the human eyeball that allow it to function as efficiently as it does. More than 80% of the memories you have are developed by the images that you see. Your retina contains 256 unique characteristics. Your fingerprint only contains 40. And then look at the world. The Earth is the fifth largest planet, and it could fit into the sun one point three million times. That number doesn't even mean anything to you because it's so big. Every second, every second, I can't even imagine, I can't do the math this quick, but there's a lot of seconds that have happened in the last 35 minutes. Um, every second, the sun loses six million tons of its mass, equivalent to one million African bull elephants every second and it doesn't make a dent. God is majestic, he is high above the heavens, and whenever God wants to undercut human arrogance in the Bible, what does he do? He just says, look up. Why would God create a world like that? If he is so committed to his people, as the scripture suggests, why bother making so many galaxies and universes which have nothing to do with us and which we cannot even remotely comprehend? Well, there's all sorts of reasons. To humble us, to express his boundless creativity, to inspire us to awe, to give us a taste of the infinite, and to help us understand phrases like, he loves us far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I can't think about how we fit into the sun 1.3 million times. And Paul is saying, he loves you more than what you can even comprehend. I think, potentially, that he did it for the fun of seeing our jaws drop open when we read Genesis 1.16, where it says, oh, and he also made the stars. But he's also personal. Look at the first book of the Bible and see he brings animals to Adam to see what Adam will call them. He walks in the garden calling to Adam. He asks people questions. He comes down from heaven in order to find out what his creatures are doing. He is so grieved, so grieved by human wickedness that he repents, or the language is he regrets making them in the story of Noah. Our God is not a cosmic principle or an indifferent idea, but a living person who thinks, feels, is active, approves what is good, disapproves what is evil, and is deeply invested in his creatures. God is personal. And then, if you look at your own life, when God has intimately spoken something so deeply personal that there's no way it couldn't have been God, where the Holy Spirit turns the light on as you open the Bible and read about the God who knows you more intimately than anyone else, where the patterns of shame get overridden by the echoes of grace, and all you can say is, thank you. And where you look back at your life and where you get in your maturation process a decade ago and say, it is only by the mercy of God that I am here. The word for gospel in the New Testament is euangelion. It means good news. 
God coming down to earth is an announcement of good news, a megaphone to the world. The kingdom of God has arrived, and so has its king. And to the surprise of the world, the king did nothing that was typically seen as royal. He wore a crown, yes, but it was made of extremely sharp thorns. And he wore a robe, but it was more for mocking purposes than it was for beautiful ones. And he drew crowds, but not for praising, rather for mocking. And he was enthroned by being raised up on death row for sins. Everything that the kingdom was about, joy, peace, justice, mercy, self-control, freedom, had come in the form of the most impressive man to ever live, who would bring it about in the most unimpressive way. Your contributions and your giftings and your work for the kingdom are both empowered by the Spirit of God and they are for the glory of God. We are a foreshadowing of another world, another home where the king has called us his family. In no other world does a majestic royal act with such dignity. In no other world does a great king showcase such humility. In no other world does a king look on the people that he rules and says, I love you and mean it. In no other world does a king enter the fray of a peasant life to give up his life for the sake of theirs. And in no other world has a king embodied power and purity, grandeur and grace, majesty and mercy. Why does glory and dominion belong to him forever? Because no other majestic God is this personal and no other personal God is this majestic. Living as a family in exile, we get to receive the life of God in us and then give it back to him in return because he is worthy and because he is worth it. Let's pray. Father, may may your kingdom come in this body, in this community, in this city, and in particularly what is the most difficult prayer to pray, may your kingdom come in our own hearts where forgiveness hospitality, service, and your lordship become our central operating system. We need your spirit to meet us in some of the harder places in our hearts. And it is your kindness that leads us to a place of repentance. Not your anger, not even ultimately your justice. It is your kindness, your grace that draws us in. Help us become people who are honest with you, honest with one another, and that propels us out into our city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.